sure, I'm just going to start leaving where there's like 20 minutes of chatter before we ever get around to starting the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer, with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Thank you for joining us again here on Barnyard Language. We're glad that you're back with us. And Katie, what's going on on your farm this week? Well, Arlene, not a whole hell of a lot, I guess. We went up and had an appointment for Jim's finger on Monday, and the doctor said basically any more unless there's, like, serious bone or tendon damage, they just let it heal over. So we get to go back the next two Mondays, I guess, to make sure that it is healing up and not falling off or whatever. Multiple dates right before Christmas. Right? Like, this is literally (laughs) more dates than we've had in, like, probably more than a year, which is really pretty sad. How far away are you having to go for these appointments? It's in 20 minutes? Hour and a half each way. Oh, so that's a long date. You could listen to some podcasts. We could, we could. The only, (laughs) you know, issue is that now that I'm working full time, um, taking a whole day off three weeks in a row. I am accruing PTO, but I'm not accruing PTO fast enough to pay for three days off in three <laughs> yeah, weeks. Yeah, that's right. So we're just making it work. But, you know, because they're giving Jim, like, painkillers and that, nobody's super comfortable with him driving home because they're, you know, shooting him full of lidocaine so that they can poke it. His right, yeah. Which is, you know, I enjoy spending the time with him. It's not it's not that at all. It's just a whole day. I don't want to say lost, because that sounds bad. But a whole day <laughs> sure, that I yeah. am not working at my work. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you have to make up those hours later, then yeah. it, does, it does feel like that. And especially in the, the weeks leading up to, to Christmas break and stuff, that the, yeah, those, but, these hours are precious. Yeah, but this week we went to uh, Target and... Uh, Farm and home, so that was pretty cool. You know, super romantic date day at, at Blaine's Fleet Farm, but we got a lot of Christmas <laughs> shopping done because we're those people that, you know, well, do our Christmas been shopping. Well, productive too. It's just like in our gift guide. Yeah. Kids are good. Went to see Santa at the library fundraiser last night. That was pretty exciting. I asked the, the boy child on the drive over there what he wanted, and he said, I want a combine and a corn head and corn and that's <laughs> you know like i like he's really thought this out about what all he's gonna need the yeah. uh the girl child asked for a robot kitty i really kind of want to get one of those um self-cleaning litter boxes because we generally have between three and four and a half cats in the house and i really am over having to clean this many litter boxes but somehow i don't think that a self-cleaning litter box is going to count as a robot that's kitty. That's not, not the robot kitty she maybe had for the, for the five-year-old. No. Um, that's a good version, though. Yeah, also just trying to help the kids understand that we give people presents as well as getting presents. Um, they both thought that maybe 
Daddy either didn't want anything for Christmas or wanted a robot kitty. The girl child's best friend is apparently receiving whatever toys that she is done playing with. That's what he's getting for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. But we're going to go to his house and get our presents from him. Right. So, yeah. And she's also, um, you know, she just turned five on Sunday. She's going to have three birthdays in the next 12 months, apparently. Yeah, that's the new plan. And she wants a big cake next time. I got her a 9 by 13 ice cream cake um, for, that, I think, 12, 12 people at her birthday. Yeah, we ate less than half of it, but it was not big enough. So <laughs> next time I am under orders to get her a big cake. Sure. So, well, I have heard of half birthdays, so maybe she's just doing thirds instead. Yeah, maybe like a, not even quarterly. Maybe we could have <laughs> quarterly birthdays, see yeah. how that works out for With, with ever-growing sizes of cakes. Did a lot of clothes shopping this week because both kids have grown almost two inches since April. Doing a lot of that, which is super fun. The boy child will only wear shirts with tractors and only oh, right. specific numbers of tractors. You know, he has one shirt with one tractor and one shirt with a bunch of tractors. You have to have the right shirt on the right day. And there's right. no, there's no um, logic that an adult can discern about what day is for what shirt. Sure, yeah. So. And and the tractor shirts are not the type that you can just walk into Walmart and find, you know, the, the three for $10 or whatever, you know, like, that tends to be your more dinosaurs and, and uh, cartoon characters where the, yeah. the tractor yeah. ones are a little bit pricier. And a lot of, a lot of sports ball, yes. you know, on the Walmart. Yeah. All, the, all the various sports. This is actually, it's been really handy because I bought myself a cricket when it became clear that this was going to be a thing, because mm -hmm. I figured that for the cost of special ordering... I think I figured 12 tractor shirts. I could justify buying a whole stack of plain shirts and a vinyl cutter and just making them myself, which mm -hmm. has been handy, but sometimes I don't, I am not um, fully versed on his artistic vision for sure. how his shirts should be. And the exact number of tractors yes. and if they have a loader on them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So then, then his demands start to, to creep up. So how have things been at your house, Arlene? Well, as you know, our girls share a birthday, although they're a few years apart. So last week I said we had some plans for a Sweet 16 party that didn't happen because she was very sick. So our week has been pretty quiet, mostly just staying home. It's not the COVID, so, you know, got tested so that... Other people could go back to school within a reasonable amount of time. But yeah, it's been kind of a quiet week. We had our first snow day of the year, so the buses were canceled. So it's been kind of chill. Not as productive, maybe, as I would have liked. The classifier was here this week. So classification is basically someone comes and gives your cows a grade, tells you how they look based, you know, kind of compared to the, the ideal cow. So... As uh, you might expect, Saturn, who is my uh, nemesis, she did very well. She's a very good two-year-old, and everyone thinks she looks lovely. Um, so I guess that's just more more evidence that she's sticking around. But yeah, she tried to headbutt me again this morning. So oh, still yeah. not a fan, even though even though the classifier liked her. Yeah, I was going to say it's like guaranteed that she'll be the best one in the herd if she's the biggest pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and live for a long time. Oh yeah. Yeah, and she's probably only ever going to have healthy heifer calves so that you won't even be able to hold that against her. Yeah, there, there's stories of, of her mother and her grandmother trying to take people out too. My husband said the other day, oh, well, I think it was her grandmother that almost took a vet down once. <laughs> it's like, maybe this isn't a line that we should be 
continuing with. And another friend had, uh, had shown her for us at, at a fair one time because her mother was also nice, but, but not, <laughs> not friendly. And, uh, yeah, he got dragged back to the barn because she was done with the show ring. So yeah, she comes from a long line of, of, uh, grumpy cows, but I guess they look good. Yeah, it's, it's hard because you can't really be like too harsh about, you know, self-determined women, I guess. But also, nobody <laughs> yeah, wants to deal to with that pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We turned our cows out on the on the corn stalks this week, and they've been quite happy. It's nice to and not have to. And if they stayed to... in the fen- house, the fencing. It's nice not to have to feed them. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. just kind of wave at them as we go by. Yeah. Are they staying in? Like the, like I feel like stuff. I I feel like I shouldn't <laughs> so answer that. Don't want to jinx it. Yeah, no one's no one's called you or sent you any trail cam pictures. So. No, well, and they're directly across the road from the house, so it's pretty sure. easy to see if they're not where they belong. They're doing, yeah. they're doing pretty well. They tend to stay in over there. It's a big space. There's lots of stocks to eat. If, so if so it you're seems... saying that I should utilize the filter between my brain and my mouth? Oh hell, so nobody else does. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We clearly don't have that. Today, we're interviewing Jessica Shaleri-Smith, who's a doctor of veterinary medicine. Jessica went to the University of Vermont for her undergraduate degree in animal science and then Tufts University for her DBM. She started her career after veterinary school in a mixed animal practice in Canton, New York, and left private practice to take a senior extension associate position with Cornell University and then joined the New York State Department of Agriculture and Markets in 2017. Jessica, we'll start with a question that we ask all of our guests. What are you growing? Well, I don't take responsibility for growing many things. Um, I'm growing a seven-year-old, and I like your term of uh, girl child. Um, And then I have a nine-month-old puppy. And then me personally take responsibility for eight purebred registered cows. I have six brown Swiss and two Guernseys. And of those, two are lactating. So I have a lactating Swiss and a lactating Guernsey, and then the rest are heifers. Three hopefully are pregnant, and then the rest are are going to hopefully get bred in the next couple months. And then I take a, a small amount of veterinary responsibility for about 1,500 dairy cows who live, and, and the dry ones, the ones that aren't lactating, live outside my dining room window. And then it's winter, it's like pretty much winter here in northern New York, so... We are, we've already done fifth cut hay. That is past for silage. All the corn is done except for a small amount that we had extra that is being combined. All right. So, Jessica, you were born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, how the hell did you end up as a cow vet in New York? Or a, okay. a, a cow well, raiser like, slash large animal vet in New York? Well, Okay, so I was, like, the quintessential, like, always wanted to be a veterinarian kid. I think there was, like, a brief moment where I wanted to be a rock star at five, but um, I don't have any of the skills necessary for that. And so I'd always wanted to be a veterinarian. I grew up with cats and dogs and, you know, was very into small animal veterinary medicine. I worked as a vet tech in high school. I worked with dog trainers. and. I wanted to be a small animal orthopedic surgeon. And then I went to college in Vermont and UVM has a 
very unique program called CREAM. It's the Cooperative for Real Education and Agricultural Management, and it's a student-run dairy herd. So when I took it, and the program has changed slightly since I did it, but it was 15 students took the class, and you started in the spring semester. So you started in January, and then you went through the spring semester, through the summer, and then through the fall semester. So you did it for a full calendar year. And those 15 students are responsible for every single thing that happens to a herd of what was then 32 lactating cows in a tie stall. So we did all the milkings. We made all the management decisions, all the breeding decisions. We were there for every herd check. We were there for every calving. And not, you know, all 15 of us for all those things, but we divided all the duties between the 15 of us. And I did that in an effort to be more well-rounded for vet school. And I came out of that falling in love with agriculture, falling in love with the dairy industry, and totally changed my career path within veterinary medicine. So then instead of you know, getting part-time jobs at small animal clinics like I had in high school. I got jobs milking cows. I did my research in undergrad on uh, calf nutrition, and that kind of changed my direction in life. What can we do as producers to make our vet's life easier, besides, like, never having emergencies and never calling on the weekend? Good handling facilities. And, you know, a good example of that was I did a TB test on a Texas Longhorn last week. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, that was fun. But, you know, the nice thing was is that the TB testing that I do, I do the confirmatory test. And so the veterinarian, the private practice veterinarian, has already done a first test, the initial test on that animal. And I only... I only come in when they have a slight reaction to that initial test. And so they already knew that she needed to be sedated. And so I get there. <laughs> Someone else found that at first. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so I get there and she's already gotten her rompum. She's already laying on the ground. Um, but, you know, if they had a, a headlocks or a shoot of some kind, they would not have had to sedate that, that heifer four times. Wow. <laughs> and I will, even, even at our farm, we built a new milking parlor in 2018 because we actually had a barn fire. I remember when they were looking at blueprints and I'd look at them and I'd say, Oh, well, where are we going to cut DAs? And my husband would be like, Well, we're going to do it right here. And I'd say, I don't think that's going to work super well. Or, you know, how I just, I can't see it. And he'd be, it, It'll be fine. It'll be fine. So and so has to be. <laughs> It's fine. And I'm like, I've been at one farm and I still can't see it. And now that we cut DAs there, now it's, well, eventually we're going to build this other thing and then we'll cut DAs there because really cutting DAs where we cut them is a pain. Yeah. yeah. For, for the non-dairy farmers, what are DAs? Oh, okay. So cows have four stomachs. The rumen is the one that we all think about with the big fermentation vat. But um, the fourth stomach is the abomasum, and it is the most similar to uh, what our stomach is in that it is acidic. And so it kind of starts to break stuff down in that fashion, and it's glandular. 
And when cows stop eating well, that stomach uh, fills with gas. And it is a stomach that is not actually attached really to anything except being in line with everything else in the intestinal tract. And so it can move. So it moves from like the bottom of their belly, uh, generally up the left side of their abdomen, uh, but occasionally up the right side of their abdomen. And then they don't want to eat because not only was whatever was happening before that made them stop eating, now they feel weird because something's out of place and filled with gas. And they probably feel bloated, although I haven't really asked. Um, but I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. and, and so what we do is generally we'll generally surgically correct it and we'll uh, put the abomasum back where it is supposed to be and tack it into place with sutures so that it cannot move again. And then they right. feel better and the gas moves out of their intestinal tract and, and then they start eating. So and you need a somewhat confined space for that to happen and not just a big open pen, for example. Yeah. Um, so, and it can vary a little bit. So there are different surgical techniques. Um, and based on the surgical technique, you can do your incision in different places. And some veterinarians will do a technique where they do an incision on the side and so the cow can be standing. And so theoretically, you could just have her standing in a headlock or you know, tied somewhere where she is not going to truly swing from side to side. But I do, um, I do a, an approach because I have very short arms because I'm a very small person. I have the cow lay down and then we roll her up on her back and I do a very fast surgical incision on her belly. And the nice thing is, is that when you roll her on her back, the abomasum floats to where it actually is supposed to be. And when you do your incision, the abomasum is right there. And then you just let off the gas quick and then you just, you open and then you close. And when you close your incision, you use that opportunity to, to uh, suture the abomasum in place where it's supposed to be. One of our local vets had to come out a few years ago to perform a phototomy on a cow out in the pasture when it had been raining. <gasps> um, yeah. He's never coming back. I mean, he'll talk to me again now, but I don't, I don't blame him. He was gross from top to toe and it was like 45 degrees out yeah. and it was a nasty long surgery. Um, and if you don't know what a phototomy is, you're just going to have to Google it. I'm not going to, yeah. I'm not going to describe yeah, it. I'm it's not nice. Those are not fun. Yeah, when I was I, in vet school, it's like the worst the worst call would be beef cow on pasture and then and and then the worst thing would be so I went to Tufts which is in Massachusetts but all of our large animal stuff based out of Connecticut and so they would cover Connecticut Rhode Island and Massachusetts and so and then if you add Rhode Island into there then it's like really bad because the people who have um like backyard beef in Rhode Island Truly are much more backyard, uh, you know, minimal handling facilities kinds of, at least when I was in, at, when I was there. And that was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. The person that has one or two cows is going to have, you know, less facilities for, for you to work with than someone who has, yeah, the hundreds or, you know, into the thousands, right, of, of animals to handle and gating and all that kind of stuff. So what led to the decision to leave private practice and to go into those other opportunities with Cornell and the Department of Ag? 
a lot of it was that I was getting married and I was getting married to a dairy farmer and we knew we were going to have a family and we spent a lot of time talking about, okay, you're on call for the farm and I'm on call for work. What happens when we both get a call in the middle of the night? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked about different options. We talked about um, my mom. Uh, we knew my mom was going to move to our town whenever we did decide to have a family. And we talked about having her building a house for her next door and different options like that. But we were, you know, I was pretty lucky in that this opportunity at Cornell came up. So Cornell has uh, their diagnostic lab for the vet school has three regional offices that just work with the dairy industry and just do samples for mastitis. And the re you know, they understand that for samples like that, you don't really want to wait the extra 24 hours to ship, you know, one or two milk samples to Ithaca. Those are samples that you really need the information in a much shorter turnaround time. And I'm lucky that they're one of those three regional offices in my town. And so not only did it give me the opportunity to remove on call for my life, but it gave me the opportunity to go back to solely working with the dairy industry, which was really my goal. You know, I, when I graduated from vet school, I wanted to do the dairy practice, but I graduated in 2009 and 2008, 2009 was rough for jobs in general. And rough for the dairy industry. So there weren't a lot of large animal exclusive or dairy exclusive practices hiring. So I went to mixed and I'm really happy I did because it gave me, a, you know, really solidified my skills for all species. But I really miss working with the dairy industry more heavily. Yeah. And I mean, when you're tied to a farm, right, it's not like you have a, a spouse who's willing to move where a job appears, right? So so your your geographic search area is going to be smaller than, you know, a vet who has a spouse who's willing to move wherever yeah. your jobs are. And I'm very lucky in that when you think about the opportunities, you know, that small percentage of opportunities for veterinarians outside of private practice, you know, I'm already into my second opportunity um, kind of within that, you know, uh, not industry, government, academia realm. And theoretically, whenever I want to hop to the next thing, there's a veterinary technician program at our local community college, and they employ three to four veterinarians in that. So I even, in my small town of 6,000 people, have more options than many veterinarians who don't have the opportunity. I know I, I feel bad because I feel like, you know, especially for more diversified farmers that may have a harder time finding a vet that knows more about their particular species, it seems like there can be some blowback on the vet for not knowing more about X, Y, and Z. And like, you know, a human doctor deals with one species. So when my vet admits that she doesn't know a whole lot about eye issues in ducks, because I'm that person, <laughs> um, you know, I'll take a solid, I googled it and here's my best guess, because I'm going to guess that, you know, she did not specialize in poultry, you know, 
eye issues in vet school. And so I, I feel bad yes, that vets kind of get a, you know, the, the short end of things there. And there were many of us that, you know, we went to vet school because they, we had a very specific vision of what we wanted to do when we got into practice. And then there's a lot of lectures that we, you know, that we pay attention to when we listen to, when we take the test and we pass. And then we dump the information because the vast majority of us do not go to vet school to work with poultry or ducks, you know, or waterfowl. And then, you know, I, I will say that that's true for me too, but in my job with the Department of Ag and Market. So, you know, I went for mixed animal where I did cats, dogs, dairy, a handful of beef, a handful of cattle, a, a pinch of small ruminant work. And then really, really specialized to do milk quality and mastitis in dairy cows. And then went to the Department of Agriculture, which then was like, okay, well, you're going to do avian influenza and forum testing for the movement to the live bird market. And you're going to do a brucellosis testing in pigs. And you're going to do this program that we have for sheep and goats for Yoni's disease and you're gonna do you know it was like became so diverse and at least within that diversity we have very specific programs like I'm not gonna go look at a a chicken for you know for an eye but I'm really good at bleeding things now yeah it's always nice to find out when you go into the vet clinic and there's a new uh new receptionist and they go Oh, you're the duck lady. Cool. I'm the duck lady. I've been coming to this practice for almost 10 years, and I'm still the duck lady. And that was in 2012. So that's fine. They know who I am. And there's a lot worse things I've been called in my life. So I'm going to, you know, I'm good with that. But And you know, when um, they know who you are, they, they will help you get in faster than if they don't know who you are. It's good for them to know who you are. Yeah, I, I have to say that, you know, watching people with um, pets in much larger urban practices, that having a vet who knows you and really makes a tremendous difference in some very hard times in life. Okay, so you and your husband are from different faith backgrounds, and as we're coming into what is often get, gets called the Christmas season... Um, how do you celebrate the holidays and honor the traditions of a mixed family? Yeah, so I'm Jewish and my husband uh, is Christian and we celebrate both um, Hanukkah and Christmas. Um, and I will say probably it, it helps that I was raised with a father who was raised Catholic. And so I was also raised with um, Christmas as a component of our home life and not just Hanukkah. So at least kind of entered the dynamics, kind of having an idea for how it can, how it can successfully run, but it is always difficult in more rural communities that are more, that are less diverse than Los Angeles or New York city or Boston to celebrate something that the rest of the world doesn't, think about or remember exists. And so, um, you know, I always make an effort to do something with my daughter's class at school to 
remind them that not everyone in their classroom is celebrating the holidays the same way that they are. Um, and my husband is very understanding of my effort of trying to balance the two holidays. And so I definitely try to make sure that the present giving is kind of equal between the two of them. Um, and that we do celebrate Hanukkah in, in a more, uh, elaborate fashion than maybe we would if we didn't have Christmas as well. I mean, Hanukkah is kind of a major or a, a minor holiday in the Jewish faith. Um, and we make it more than it would be otherwise because of not wanting the next generation of Jews to feel like they're missing out on something compared to Christmas. So, you know, I look at what we do uh, outside the home um, for activities and parties and stuff like that. And I try to make sure that we're doing something kind of comparable for Hanukkah. So, you know, we'll invite some family friends um, over for Hanukkah and have dinner with them and make latkes with them so that Rosie can feel like she is sharing that holiday in the same way that Christmas is shared with a larger community. Um, it was, it's certainly been harder last year and this year because our Jewish community isn't doing near, doing a lot in person because of COVID. And normally having, you know, our Hanukkah party with Hebrew school and, and our, our congregation does a big, we call it the food festival. And, you know, it's kind of almost like a little mini restaurant and we, serve all sorts of Jewish food that you could not easily otherwise get. And so that's kind of another, you know, component of our holiday season. And those things don't, aren't happening because of, but I'm going to zoom with her class and I send in little goodie bags with a dreidel and gelt and explanation for how to play dreidel. And I'll read a book about Hanukkah and the story behind Hanukkah and what that is. So we make it work. It's always, I will say, I think that the Passover Easter situation is always a little bit harder um, because Easter will always fall during Passover since the Last Supper was a Passover Seder. And so every year when we, and it to me, it's less of a big deal that they overlap because Passover is eight days and Easter is one. And so I got seven other days that are just Passover, but I keep kosher for Passover. And that means I can't have bread. I can't have anything with breading. I can't have the vast majority of desserts. And then we go to my in-laws for Easter and I can't eat like 80% of that meal. Yeah. And in that sense too, I mean, like the, the in-law stuff, you know, we both live close, close to our in-laws and and I'm not too far from my parents too. And sometimes even, even if you share the same faith or similar traditions, there's still that difference. And like, well, I didn't celebrate that way, <laughs> you know, like that, you know, that's not how we do Easter or that's not how we do Thanksgiving or, and then when you add that faith element or, or, you know, like something like, like fasting or, or, you know, food restrictions, then that becomes, can become a bit more complicated too. Yeah. And you're uh, you're kind of not justifying, but yeah, you're having to explain more about 
out about how you're doing things or, or why. Or... Yeah. And setting boundaries on like, we're, we're happy to participate with you in this fashion or, you know, in this context, but we're not gonna participate in the exact same way that everyone else in the family participates. Mm-hmm. Um, and to create a compromise. And that has kind of been the key word to our marriage has been figuring out the compromise and a lot of like really serious, you know, how are we going to make this work? Hash it out, really kind of get to the nitty gritty of it between my husband and myself and then say, okay, so how, how do we want it to look? And then how do we present that to whichever side is, you know, we're having that. Yeah. And and even what, what works for us as the couple. And then once you have a child or, once they're beyond, you know, baby, yet they're starting to understand the traditions, those discussions evolve as the kids get older, too, right? As they understand more. And like you said, you know, maybe hyping up Hanukkah a bit just to make sure that it gets equal billing, even though, you yeah. know, maybe it, it's not not the most important holiday, but you're trying to also make sure that there's there's a, an honoring of both, both traditions. Yeah. It's easy for things that aren't Christmas to get lost in Christmas. Christmas in the United yeah. States, just like, it just is everything. You know, you can't turn on the radio without it being Christmas music. You can't, you know, you can't walk into a store without it being decorated for Christmas. At least, you know, and that's the hard thing. At least growing up in Los Angeles, LA has like a big enough Jewish community that on the radio, you know, they do Adam Sandler's Eight Crazy Nights and they throw in some of the more contemporary Hanukkah songs and you go into stores and every store would have, you know, even if it was an end cap, it'd have something for Hanukkah. I mean, mm-hmm. our grocery store is like, oh, there's a Jewish holiday coming up, too. Let's put out the matzah. And you're like, that's not this holiday. Like, <laughs> but we've got some not- leftovers. So yeah, we'll, uh, yeah, pull it back out again. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's Jewish. And so, therefore, it applies to all of them. Yeah. Our kids go to school in a small town locally that we actually open enrolled into, um, largely because of the diversity, there's a kosher packing plant in town that was opened by Orthodox Jews. And so it's this town of like, you know, 2,000 people or something with this massive Orthodox community that then brought in a huge number of Latin folks from Central America and indigenous folks from Central America, and then a huge number of Muslims from East Africa. And so this tiny little town, you know, they put up the Christmas decorations and it's like a tree and then a menorah, you know, on the on the street lights. And they light the candles on the menorahs, you know, during Hanukkah. And it's just like mind blowing to me that we actually get to go to this small town where people say happy holidays and mean it because there's at least some recognition that it's not, you know, de-Christianing Christmas and, you know, being politically correct, but just not being a jerk. Oh, I love it. I'm so yeah, jealous. It's, That's it's so, so cool. strange. It's, you know. And awesome. Yeah, it's great. With an, with an Orthodox Jewish subset of your community, does the public, does your school give the Jewish high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur off? You get them off? The kids, so the 
the company was actually taken over by some very, very conservative Hasidic Jews who then got into a whole bunch of legal trouble and it's, you know, there's been a lot of turmoil. So the kids are all going to a separate religious school, but they're in the community, you know, and so it's, but I think the folks who took over are more liberal. And so I think we'll start seeing more of those kids in the public schools. And then, yeah, it will be interesting to see, you know, what they start doing about these things because it's a big community. Yeah. They should open a bakery too. Because there is nothing better than a good kosher bakery. They have a, there's, I think, at least two um, kosher groceries in town. And I really want to check them out, but it seems super awkward. Like, I don't want to seem like I'm being a tourist, but also, I bet there's really good bread there. Uh, yeah, holla. Go in on a Friday to get some challah because not only is it not the best bread ever, but challah French toast is amazing. I just, I love that in this small town, it's common in house listings to see that all of, you know, you'll see houses listed with um, kosher kitchens where there's two sets of everything or, you know, it'll list that the appliances all have Sabbath mode. Driving down Main Street is certainly not what you would expect to see in a town in this area, which Small town I think Iowa. is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. so I have so I have a question. How far are you from Ames? Two and a half hours. Ames is actually my hometown. Okay. Well, the next time I do a USDA training in Ames, maybe I'll rent, stay an extra day and rent a car. Yeah, or I can area. come down because it's not that far. Um, my mom only lives like yeah. half an hour from there. So. Okay. Yeah. Or you could come up to Postville and we could hit the uh, the Jewish groceries. Yeah, well, I'd really like to stock up on some of the staples that I can't get. Because they're expensive to order off Amazon. Oh, I bet. I bet. It seems awkward, yeah. though, to be like, I brought my own Jewish person with me. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure like any small business, as long as you're buying, <laughs> yeah. they're happy to take your business. Yeah, I yeah. think it'd be fine. So I know that any parent who gets asked this question, you usually end up laughing at whoever asks it. But um, do you have any thoughts or advice on achieving life, work, farm balance? And what does that look like for you and your family? The best thing I did was, you know, adjust my career to create more work-life balance. And I will say, even from leaving private practice, when I went into academia, I mean, academia is like a pretty traditional salary job in that this is what we pay you for the year and we expect you to get the work done. And if that takes 50 hours, that's fine. And if it takes 35 hours, that's fine. And I was a little bit lucky in that being far away from Ithaca and the mothership of the rest of Cornell University meant that I had a lot of autonomy, but I'm also, you know, your very typical uh, veterinarian that I'm type A and I'm an overachiever and I really want, I had a lot of like big ideas that I wanted to execute in that job. And so I did work more like 50 to 60 hours a week. And then I went to a government job and the government tracks your hours and they track how long you work and they don't want you to put in overtime because they don't want to pay you for overtime. And it really um, was the best thing that I could do for creating work-life balance because the government did it for me. They said, 
you know, the minute I hit 40 hours in a work week or 80 hours in my pay period, I'm done. So like I worked on Saturday because I had to read that, read that TV test in that Texas Longhorn. And so I already know that on Wednesday before Thanksgiving, the last day in my pay period, I'm only going to work a half day and then I will make pies for Thanksgiving. <laughs> so that really helped. And then I will say early in my relationship with my husband after we moved in together, I got very frustrated on the house cleaning dynamics. And very quickly, we made the decision to hire a housekeeper on a biweekly basis. And that is probably the best thing I ever did and the thing that I will never give up. And, you know, when you find a good housekeeper, you do what you can to keep her happy. So she keeps coming back because finding a good one is hard. So that that's also, you know, if you can delegate something out and pay for it, if you can afford to do it, do it. It's not, you know, reducing stress is worth a lot more than money because it's your sure. So you touched on it a bit, but um, you also do some vet work on your husband's farm. Is that like a weekly commitment when it's needed? Kind of what's your involvement on, on that end of things? Um. So... It's an as needed. So I don't have time on a weekly basis to do a regular herd check. Sure. Um, for a herd our size, it probably would take me two to three hours. And it, I also, you know, when I was in private practice, I used an ultrasound for preg checking cows. And I would not, I would not go backwards from that. Sure. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, it's, it's better for your arm and your rotator cuff to do that. I'm also a small person. And so, you know, dealing and trying to reach into big cows is hard. And so anything you can do to make it a little bit easier is good for your health. Um, and a, a, a bovine ultrasound is going to run, you know, eight to $10,000. And I just, I don't have the time. It's not a piece of equipment we're ready to invest in right now. And so they do uh, blood testing for pregnancy on the vast majority of animals. If they buy, like, so we're a weird, a little bit odd in our dynamics on the farm. We made the decision a couple of years ago to sell all of our young stock. So we don't raise replacement. So all of our cows get bred to beef semen, and, except for the Swiss and the Guernseys. Right, you're. I don't, but um, <laughs> everyone else gets, gets bred to beef semen and all the calves go. And. And then they go into the beef industry. And so sometimes we'll buy in replacement animals and we'll get some vague but not great breeding information. And so I'll do batches of, you know, we bought these 50, arm these 50 to make sure that the information we have is accurate or correct. And then I'll do sick cows and DAs as needed yesterday. We had a cow that must have got her face caught on something and she had a big laceration right next to her nostril. And so before bedtime, we brought the girl child to the, to the barn and she sits on the farm computer and watches Barbie videos. And I sewed up this cow's face. And sure. So, yeah. so, you know, a lot of it is like here and there sick cow work. The big stuff, you know, the big preg checking stuff is very much, you know, convenient because we can say, okay, well, these animals are arriving on this day, you know, when in the next week or so can you arm them? 
Sure. And, you know, we can find the time to do that. So, Jessica, question then. If it's a night during Hanukkah or Christmas Eve, or I don't, like, I don't know about Arlene's farm, but we consistently only call the vet on Sunday nights of holiday weekends. Like, that is the <laughs> only time we ever have emergencies. If you had an emergency at that point, would you call your vet in or would you just go out and do it? Yeah, it would depend a lot on the holiday and the commitments. There aren't, you know, there aren't a huge number, you know, even if a cow has a DA, you know, I can say, well, I can't do her, you know, at four o'clock, but maybe my mom can come and sit with Rosie, you know, at, you know, at seven or eight and put her to sleep and we'll go do it later. Or, you know, there are lots of things that, you know, other than calvings, there are other things that everything else can kind of wait except for a right DA or a calving. Animal health is always the priority. You know, though really the only time we call in other veterinarians are for, you know, those situations when I truly can't come. And generally that's, I am traveling for work or I am on vacation with our daughter by myself. and. I physically am not in town to do it. Yeah. I mean, I guess my husband is also, I will say, fairly self-sufficient. He can do a uterine torsion by himself. He can do, he's better at calvings than I am. He really calls me if he's like, I think this needs a C-section. And depending on the area, I mean, I know sometimes, I mean, we have emergency on-call vets, but it could still take them an hour or two or yeah. three, depending where they are and what they're doing at the time that you call them to get there. So, I mean, even if you have to delay by an hour or two, you might still get there before an emergency yeah. yet, depending on where, where they are when you when they get the call. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, I have very good relationships with all the other veterinarians in my area because, you know, now I'm not competition to any of them. I work with all of them on uh, in other programs that I do for work. And so they have all been, you know, there have been times where different ones have been called depending on Know, who's at the farm and you know other than me or my husband to come and do something or you know what's going on for my old boss or someone else and so you kind of call in favors and they're really wonderful on covering as your daughter gets so older do you see yourself going back into private practice or do you feel um yeah you already mentioned the potential teaching opportunity or do you feel like these other ways of being a veterinarian are more suited to both what you want to specialize in and and where you want to go with your career. Well, so now that I have a state job, um, and actually working for Cornell was technically a state job too, so I'm just shy of having, you know, the 10 years you need to be vested in the state system. And But the state pension gets better the longer you're with the state. And so I would like, and I do really like my job, and I don't, like I'm at the point in my job where I'm bored yet, but there may be a point, you know, that's kind of, I don't like to be bored. I don't like to feel like I'm doing the same thing day after day. And so, you know, once I get to that point in this job, then I'll probably think about waiting for something to open up at our local vet tech program, because that also will still be within the state system. And so to kind of keep that continuity, but also do something new. I think that, you know, those are 10-month appointments. And I think that if I did that in the summer, I'd do some private practice work. But it would I, it would be interesting to be able to go into private practice and make it exactly what I wanted it to be, as opposed to 
being an employee for somewhere else that, you know, you're working with the clients that they have kind of cultivated um, and doing the things that they have agreed to do. And so you don't really get to pick and choose as much as when you're your own boss. But I don't know, one day at a time, one year at a time. I'm not ready to leave this job yet. I mean, there's an open position at our local vet tech program, and I'm just not ready to leave my job. I like my I like what I'm doing right now. That is worth a lot to have a job that you like, and especially if it you know pays well enough and is uh, stable enough that it's reasonable for your family. It's, yeah, makes a huge difference. So, Jessica, what county fair contest, real or made up? Would you be able to dominate? Well, so you have to remember that I, so I cover four county fairs and I work state fair for New York every year, except, you know, last year when there were none because of COVID. But I, my farmers would tell you that I would dominate at rejecting animals. (laughs) Yes. The ringworm. The one, the the little spots they tried to hide. Yes. Yes. And, and it's always funny because lots of them, you know, they'll be like, oh, but you let this animal stay at this previous fair. And I'll be like, well, I was not looking well enough. I did not do my job right at that fair. I should have rejected her two weeks ago. <laughs> so, but I mean, I will say I have only recently discovered that you can enter um, produce that you grow. And so I think that is going to be, that's going to be my goal next year. Is to you have a, a specific, you do you have some vegetables that are particularly good or that you? Uh... Well, I mean, I do, I do kind of the standards. Um, you know, it would kind of depend on what I thought I could get a good crop out of. In, you know, our county fair is the first week of August. And so that's a little early for tomatoes. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to need any tomatoes, probably, or maybe no, even cucumbers. Unless I, unless, I, unless I build a greenhouse. I don't know, maybe beans. Beans are good, but it's early for squash. It's early, and, you know, it's kind of early for the growing season. That So Arlene is, like, 45 minutes north of me, maybe. Yeah, about that. Yeah. And so you probably have a very similar growing season to us. Yeah, and, yeah you might get some peas or beans or that early in the year, but that would yeah. be just about it. I definitely have to do uh, start stuff indoors, and I don't always do that. But now that pot is legal in your area, Arlene, is there a category for that at the right. county fair? Well, we haven't had any fairs since pot became legal, but I don't know. Maybe, I'm I don't know if the judges a are prepared to judge it, or if the if the the fairs would have appropriate security because it's still fairly. Uh, even though it's legal, it's it's somewhat uh, secure on the lockdown category. So I don't know. I'll, I've got some people who are part of our local fair board. I'll uh, see if see if they're considering that for uh, 2022. Well, I mean, I know like our our state fair has you know beer and wine judging, so it seems like yeah. we should be able to have pot brownie judging, which I feel <laughs> like could yeah. really increase you know. Um, Income for the judges might want to do that at the end of the day, yeah. so they're not working around the, <laughs> the rest of the building trying They'd be to find something. Way too relaxed, blue ribbons for everybody. <laughs> yeah. All right, sorry, <laughs> inquiring minds need to know. Sure. 
So we're going to do our cussing and discussing section now. We'd love to get submissions from our listeners. If you have something you would like to cuss and discuss, you can record a voice memo and send it to us. You can email us your cussing or discussing, private message us, send us a message on Instagram, and we can read it out for you. And uh, we promise we won't try to copy any original accents. We'll just read it in our own voices. Oh, I thought that meant that I was going to have to read them. But I have (laughs) a solid Midwestern accent. I'm just saying, depending where they come from, we're not going to try and copy anyone's accent. So, Katie, do you have anything to cuss and discuss this week? I know I do, but I don't know what it was yet. Oh. I know. I got one. I got one. My dear sweet husband. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. I've been trying to let go of my more type A organizing methods that nobody sticks to, including myself, and then it just makes me angry. So I finally, like, I gave the kids just a bin to throw their shoes in. And we have a boot tray in the entryway for, for tour boots. But my dear sweet husband cannot take his boots off in the entryway. He has to come in the door and then take them off, which would be fine if the boots then went back out the door. But they do not. So they stay directly inside the door, and every time I go to the door to let the dog out or let the dog in or let the dog out again or whatever, I trip over his fucking boots. (laughs) And one of these nights, I'm going to throw them at his head. And I know he's going to hear this. I love you, Jim. I love you. But tripping over your shitty chore boots directly inside the door in my socks at 430 in the morning when I'm letting Oli goddammit out into the yard. You can you can all just picture the face I'm making right now. My husband knows what face I'm making right now. <laughs> I love you, Jim. I do. So by the by the time this episode comes <laughs> out, you'll, you'll give it a couple days and see if there's any... Uh, <laughs> response to your cousin. I feel better. Thank you, Marlene. Because <laughs> he's such a small, therapy, stupid thing. The, and he's, the he's other member a, of the couple, not here. Yeah, he's such a good man, and he puts up with so much shit, and I know I do things that are so much worse than that. Anyway, Arlene, what do you have to cuss and discuss? So, this is a story that I was saving, and it seems like Jessica's the perfect guest, because I think Yvette will appreciate it the most. And it's also Christmas related, so it's all on theme. So a few, so well, I guess several years ago now, my my little, well now teenage daughter was a little one, and she was, I think she was probably in that three four range. And we'd gone to my sister's place, and she'd already decorated her tree, and she had these beautiful blown glass ornaments, and they were like thin at the top, and then kind of like had a almost like a bulb at the bottom. Um, and so the little girl looks up at them, and it's like. Oh, Aunt Nita, those look just like when a cow's gonna have a baby. Because they're, they were like, uh, kind of translucent red, and they look like a drip of, you know, like, bloody mucus, basically. (laughs) So, for anyone else, they're just a beautiful glass ornament, but now you can't look at her tree without seeing the drips of bloody cow mucus on the Christmas tree. It's better than her saying, wow, this looks like placenta. Yeah, that that would be much larger. But yeah. <laughs> Jessica, do you have anything to cuss and discuss from this week or this year? Oh, well, I do. I do. I feel like it has been my never-ending cussing this, since school resumed this year is the school drop-off line. 
Is this true for anyone else that it's like everyone has forgotten school drop-off line etiquette? It's like, don't do the drop-off line if you need to get out of your car. Because <laughs> then it's not a line anymore. It's just a parking lot. Yes. That's why there's a parking lot. Go park. <laughs> yeah. Or you get to the, so we have a line and then there's a circle that you pull into and it has room for like five cars. And that way those five cars can let their kids out onto the sidewalk. Don't pull halfway up. So only three cars can fit. Like pull all the way up. It's, I just don't understand how this is hard. I am that parent. I emailed the principal of our elementary school about it twice now. Yeah. And I just, Could you send an email to all the parents and tell them what they need to do? Yes. And she keeps saying, well, we'll deal with it. And then I'm like, I don't see any emails. When we first started at this elementary school for pre-K, there was an email that said, this is drop-off line etiquette. And that has never, that has not happened since. And I don't understand why. Because there are new, you know, there are new parents. Every year there are new parents. And that's fine. And I understand that. But if we communicate the expectations, then it is easier on all of us. Exactly. Then we all know what we're supposed to do. I have to say my kids are still small enough that I park and walk them in. But I definitely feel like if you're doing more than slowing down and opening the door, you need to go park. There should not be a process here. Like, just ejector seat. No. Right out the door. You know, we're in November. I still occasionally see a parent that not only gets out of their car to help their kid out of their car, but then walks away from their car to go walk the kid to the door. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're breaking the rules. Yeah. You just need to start honking at them. Oh, (laughs) it's a small community. That's hard. Then my, then my husband says that I am that parent. (laughs) Let the principal do this job. Come on. I know. Maybe I've you just need to it. write the email for him and say, just put your name on it. No, <laughs> I wish. I feel like I that's probably the worst part about small towns. is isn't even people gossiping about you. It's that you can't give them anything to gossip about by, like, flipping people off or losing your shit in the school drop-off line or whatever else. Because everybody's yeah. going <laughs> to know about it. That stuff is easier in Los Angeles. It's a lot more anonymity there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us today and for letting us uh, interview you and talk all things vet and family and kids. And um, we both look forward to having visits from you uh, someday. (laughs) 